Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. In our last episode for 2023, we are doing something a bit different and publishing a panel moderated by Crisis Group's president and CEO, Comfort Arrow, at the Doha Forum last week. The vicious war in Sudan has dominated our podcast this year, so it seemed apt to end our year with this conversation. Comfort speaks with Ambassador Mike Hammer, the U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn, Undersecretary General Hannah Tete, also a Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa for the United Nations. You'll also recognize Khulud Kerr, a Sudan analyst and frequent guest on the show, and lastly, Crisis Group's Africa Director, Marithi Mutiga. Just a note that this was recorded early last week, so it was before the Rapid Support Forces launched their new offensive to the east. This conversation has been edited for time, but you can find the link to the full video of the panel in the show notes. Thank you all for joining us for this afternoon's session. I hope you had a nice um, lunch. We've had a slight change to our panel. We've roped in, because I can do that, roped in uh, our Africa director um, for Crisis Group um, to join us. Just to throw a, a few statistics onto the table to show you just how grave the situation is in Sudan today, and then we can sort of have a conversation around that. And as I was preparing and thinking through about Sudan, here are some really worrying statistics. You know, today we've seen 7 million uprooted from their homes, 19 million children out of school, countless civilians um, died as a result of the conflict, and we have a famine looming due to the amount of displaced people. Let me start, um, because you've just come back from Djibouti Ambassador Mike Hammer, you were watching the latest initiative around mediation taking place in Sudan, this time led by the sub-regional body for the Horn of Africa. And just to put this in, in context, you have a situation today, Ambassador, where there's a sense in which we have to spend a lot of time mediating the mediators. So many initiatives, so many individual mediation processes taking place, whether it's in Jeddah that was initially led with Saudi Arabia and yourselves, the United States, an Egyptian initiative, an Africa Union initiative, and then we have the IGAD initiative. But what has come out of this latest round of efforts, this time led by regional heads of states, and how do, how do you see the prospects for mediation going forward? Well, thank you very much, Comfort, and great to see so much interest in the crisis in Sudan, which cannot be forgotten. We owe it to the Sudanese people to work to bring an end to this tragedy. As Comfort mentioned, I just uh, arrived uh, very early this morning from uh, Djibouti, where we were invited to participate as the United States in the extraordinary summit of IGAD with the heads of state there. And I come away with some sense of progress. Uh, the leaders engaged with both uh, Generals uh, Burhan, who was there in person, and General Hameti by phone, and were able to get commitments from the both of them for an unconditional ceasefire, as well as a hopefully soon to be held one-to-one -one meeting between the two to try to, again, bring an end to this conflict. And so we as the United States together with our UN partners and others, have been supporting 
EGAD's efforts in conjunction with the African Union. We have been working in Jeddah with our Saudi partners and in fact added uh, EGAD on behalf of also the AU uh, to work in Jeddah for ceasefires and access to humanitarian assistance. But unfortunately, due to the lack of delivery on commitments, the Jeddah process has stalled. So we are heartened by the engagement of the EGAD leaders as we saw in Djibouti and their personal commitments to try to work to bring an end to, to this crisis. It is evident that the atrocities being committed are reprehensible, atrocious. The sexual-based violence against women is abhorrent. And we, the international community, must all rally together in support of these African efforts that EGAD as an organization with its member states and, of course, the African Union are trying to bring to an end. And let me just say a word, and I know we'll discuss it further, but it's also critically important to recognize that the belligerents don't have a role in the future of Sudan that must be allowed to continue in terms of the civilians and the effort that Sudanese civilians, the Sudanese-owned, the Sudanese-led civilian political process must be what follows in terms of a transition to democratic governance. Can I just um, follow up on that, um, on your point about the, bellig the belligerents won't have a future in Sudan? How are you going to make that, that possible? Number one, I heard from Djibouti, but please correct me, that there's, in two weeks' time, the leaders will meet face to face. How are you going to get them there? Will there be a willingness, for example, from the Sudanese armed forces side to engage in, in talks? And does Hemeti himself on the rapid support force see a willingness to engage with General Burhan as a head of state of Sudan? All good questions. Of course, we discussed the follow-on efforts that EGAD will undertake to try to make sure that the commitments are followed through for General Burhan in person made a commitment to a unilateral ceasefire and this face-to-face, -face, as did General Hemeti. They have to live up to their words. Their actions have to reflect their commitments. So far, we haven't seen it in Jeddah, but now in front of several African leaders of EGAD, they have made this commitment. They bear responsibility. If they do not stop, this will inevitably lead to the breakup of Sudan, which no one wants to see. It will be Generals Burhan and Hameti who will be responsible for the division of the country. The situation is grave. The moment is now for them to stop. So we will, as the United States, together with others, support EGAD's efforts to bring the two together. They must realize that there is no acceptable military solution to this crisis. They have destroyed their country. Enough is enough. And I think they need to hear that from all of us. And we're pleased that the Emiratis, for example, were included in this last EGAD summit. I'm sure there are interests for Egypt to also become involved, of course, with our Saudi partners. So there's a way to bring all these interested parties and concerned parties to work together to harmonize our efforts, which is what we've been trying to do with the African Union and EGAD, 
And I think only when we all work together on, in common cause can there be enough pressure on those generals to realize, again, that this has been a tragedy, a mistake of unconscionable proportions, and that now is the time to bring an end to it and then to give back to the Sudanese people the revolution that they held and give them their prospects for democracy back. I'm sure um, Khaloud and Maruti, you'll have some comments in relation to that, particularly about you know, how you get both men to sort of fulfill that commitment, especially when, Ambassador Mike, the, the tap hasn't been turned off in terms of what's keeping the war alive, in terms of revenue and resources. I think that's one of the tragedies that we saw in Sudan. But before I turn to Ambassador Hannah Tete, I have one more question for you, Ambassador. In relation to, to Jeddah, you made reference to Jeddah yourself. What, what is the fate of Jeddah today. And the reason I ask, Ambassador, is that there is a perception, rightly or wrongly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a per perception, at least, that the United States itself historically has played a strong role on Sudan and the Horn of Africa. You've grabbed the, the initiative on Sudan, but at the same time, you've sort of let the, the ball drop, you know, in, in a sense. Yeah. And that's that's the price of leadership, right? Uh, you try to do something it? and mm -hmm. uh, everyone else is free to criticize. But uh, let me first address, uh, you, you raised a very important point. The EGAD leaders in their communique spoke clearly and unequivocally that outside support for the belligerent parties must end. It is fueling this war. So that is a very important point. Uh, secondly, as, as you're well aware, when this horrific conflict started, there was an urgency to emergency diplomacy, and that led to Jeddah, where the two parties were prepared to talk together with the United States and Saudi Arabia about ceasefires and humanitarian access. Mm -hmm. Over time, we've brought in our partners in EGAN and the African Union, Yet, we haven't seen the desired results, and we are very encouraged by the leadership being demonstrated by the leaders of EGAD uh, to personally invest time and effort to try to bring this conflict to an end, and we want to support this. Jeddah is still there as an avenue for trying to, again, have confidence-building measures for ensuring humanitarian access, as you described at the top. The, the situation is tragic. It is, in fact, the way it's, it's shaping up, the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, affecting the most amount of people. And, and therefore, we need to, again, work together. I think that this initiative by EGAD and the commitments they have now secured from the two leaders is critically important. There's a hard road ahead to make sure that they live up to their commitments. But again, if these men have any honor, they should. They should live up to the commitments that they made very clearly to the leaders and show up, have the one-to-one -one meeting that they said they would, and implement the unconditional ceasefire both committed to. This is not hard if they have, again, some semblance of what is important to the Sudanese people and not to their own narrow interests. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Ambassador Tete, I know you, you are here as a UN representative, but I'd also like to abuse your former role as a foreign, former foreign minister of, of Ghana. 
as well. And you have worked tirelessly in other spaces to, to deal with crises on the continent. But first, in your capacity as sort of, of UN envoy, how do you see the role today of former foreign minister for Algeria, Lamamra, in the new role that the SG has asked him to play. We, we know him very well from his role in the Africa Union days. He comes with a lot of credentials, but what role can he play today and how does that further strengthen the, the position of the United Nations after the very unfortunate letter that was submitted by the Sovereign Council asking for a new head of the UN mission? Thank you very much, Dr. Eru, and thank you to the Doha Forum for inviting us to be part of this discussion. I'd like to start by saying that uh, perhaps unlike other mediators, the UN does not need to be mediated. And my colleague, former Minister Lamamra, who has now been appointed as the personal envoy of the Secretary General for Sudan, will work together with all the other parts of the UN to make sure that in dealing with this multifaceted crisis, we deliver as one. He brings considerable strengths and experience to the table. He has been the foreign minister of Algeria twice. He's been the African Union Commissioner for Peace and Security. He has been the African Union Special Envoy on Silencing the Guns. He has been part of the SG's Council of Mediators, and I could go on and on and on. But more importantly, he brings a deep knowledge of the country, the region, and has extensive networks that should help us as the UN, working together with other partners, to bring together all of the actors who have an interest in what is going on in Sudan to make sure that we have a coherent approach. Given the amount of suffering that you have just detailed that is happening to the people of Sudan, and we must not lose sight that this is about them and not necessarily about all of the other actors who are involved. I think it's important for us to focus on what matters most, working together to have a credible joint mediation effort to obtain a political solution that allows for a cessation of hostilities, that allows for a return to a transitional civilian-led administration, and ultimately leads to the development of a political project that is owned by the Sudanese people themselves. Now, I think that one of the, just to build on the points that Ambassador Hammer was making, in the IGAD meeting, there was a commitment to have an unconditional cessation of hostilities. And I think that is important. That commitment to an unconditional cessation of hostilities is what we should all be driving to achieve. Because really, this is a conflict between two military establishments. It's not really a conflict of the Sudanese people. And, and it is regrettable that those institutions that pledge to protect people are the ones who are causing them the most harm. So it has to be an unconditional ceasefire. There are no terms or preconditions that ought to come into play before that happens. But it is also important to recognize that the government of Sudan and a government of Sudan will have to be a government that reflects Sudan. And that's the reason why it is the civilian actors that should be consulted as part of that process to get the outcome that is desired. Now, the UN will work in support of IGAD and the African Union as institutional partners in this peace process, but we recognize that there is also a role to be played by other actors. And by other actors, I'm talking about neighboring states to Sudan, 
that may not be part of IGAD, are not part of IGAD, but are also influenced by what happens in Sudan. Egypt, Chad, the Central African Republic are cases in point, but also the region as well. And then to add to the point that Mike made, I think it was encouraging that we had the UAE present in the IGAD meeting that took place on the 9th. But you need more than that. You need Egypt at the table as well. You need Saudi Arabia at the table as well. They have been important actors in this process. And so to join an AU, IGAD, UN, all of the other actors' initiative, having one process in support of a Sudanese cessation of hostilities and then a political process so that we can see the end to this tragedy. Ambassador, I have two follow-up questions. I mean, you emphasized unconditional cessation of hostilities. The fundamentals for which both sides went to war hasn't changed. So how do you begin to get both sides to commit to that unconditional cessation of hostilities when for them, this is an existential crisis, it's a matter of survival. So how, how, how do you begin to, to get the two sides to make that commitment, which you, Ambassador Hammer, has emphasized, and now you're repeating, Ambassador Hannah. And six months later, they are no closer to meeting their objectives. And in another six months, it's unlikely that they will be closer to meeting their objectives. But all that will happen is that more misery would have been inflicted on the Sudanese people. And those objectives will not be met without a negotiation that looks to security sector reform as well as a political civilian-led transition. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that those actors that are supporting the belligerents to continue this conflict, and that was included in the IGAD communique and was uh, raised in the meeting, understand that there is no positive outcome to this conflict. Mm -hmm. There is not likely to be a winner. And the reason why I say that is that, yes, it is true that the RSF has inflicted a huge amount, but I wouldn't just say the RSF. The fighting between the two belligerents has inflicted a huge amount of damage on the capital city of Khartoum. It is also the case that the fighting that has taken place in the Darfur region has laid waste to all of the investment that was made by UNAMIT in trying to establish peace within that particular region and help them in their efforts. And it is also the case that notwithstanding the fighting that is taking place, if they are continued to be supported, you are going to have, let's assume for the purposes of this discussion, and I'm not saying that is the case, so please with the caveats, that you had an RSF victory. Do you think that with the damage and with the harm that has been inflicted on the people in the areas where this fighting has taken place, they would be ready to accept that leadership? I don't think so, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So there is no end in sight that necessarily meets the objectives and the desires of the belligerents. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why there's no point in continuing to support this fighting. Mm -hmm. Before you put the mic down, I, I want to ask you a question with your former hat on. And you have been an observer, and we've always talked about African solutions for African problems. We've always talked about how the, the regional diplomacy is key. Why did the Africa Union, at this moment in time, when it was a guarantor of the peace process in 2019, why is it now advocating the Peace and Security Council? Why is it advocating for a high-level um, mediation body um, to address Sudan? I think it is in recognition of the fact that 
the methods that have been used till this point have not really helped us to get that far in trying to bring an end to the conflict. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think that what is important is that given the different strengths of our respective organizations and bilateral partners who have been involved in this process, that it's important for that effort not to be exclusionary, but rather focused on leveraging different institutional strengths. From the UN perspective, we are ready to support African solutions to African problems. Indeed, the joint framework on peace and security signed between the UN and the African Union in 2017 summarizes that. So we do not have a problem with having an African-led process. What we want is to support an effective process. Thank you very much. Khalid, help me here because, you know, we, we've come back from Djibouti. We had this announcement of an unconditional um, cessation of facilities that the two sides will, will meet in two weeks' time. Our assessment is that phase one of the conflict, Hemeti does appear ascendant, that he is in a more victorious position. So why would he commit to, to peace? Burhan, on his side, how unified is the, are the Sudanese armed forces today? There's a sense in which the Islamists um, appear to be constraining his own ability to decide whether to sue for peace. There's also question marks about his own um, power within the SAF um, and that there are other generals who are pulling the strings. He's like a, a puppet that doesn't necessarily have control. So why should we assume that anything that's come out of Jeddah is going to form a strong basis for negotiation between the two men? Quite clearly, Burhan is not able to make commitments and stick to them. Um, and to the extent to which Hemeti is willing to stick to any commitments he made is also questionable. So I personally don't have any faith that these gentlemen will meet, and I use that term very lightly, will meet in the next two weeks or, or even in the next near future. I think we have to fundamentally question the assumptions that we have around this conflict. Every conflict of this nature that we have had in Sudan since its independence has lasted around 20 years. We're so far at the nine month mark. And if we look at it from that perspective, the question becomes what kind of investments do we need to make right now to make sure that loss of life is at a minimum and to make sure that we give as much support as possible to the protection of civilians, rather than being completely invested in, frankly, lackluster diplomatic efforts that so far have not yet yielded any ceasefires because they haven't yet been able to corral the right kind of international actors. You know, we often hear, this is, you know, Sudan requires an African solutions to African uh, problems kind of perspective. Well, this isn't an African problem. This is a very globalized problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Sudan sits on the Red Sea, it sits in the Horn of Africa, it sits on the Sahel, it sits in North Africa, very close to Europe, quite clearly what happens in Sudan affects a lot of countries and a lot of regions. And therefore, the answer to a lot of the issues that we have in bringing about a ceasefire will need to include the region as much as possible. Now, we have to also distinguish between ending the fighting, in other words, securing a ceasefire or a secession of hostilities agreement, and ending the war. As you said earlier, the, the reasons why these men and their junior partners went to war in the first place and frankly devastated the entire country um, are still there. 
they're still concerned about their troops, they're still concerned about their finances, they're still concerned about their necks, they don't want to be subjected to any kind of Saddam Hussein-style, you know, transition justice court. And so if they don't have any kind of guarantees around these, and these are very difficult conversations to have, I don't think we will see them sincerely and genuinely commit to any kind of um, ceasefire agreements. Well, do you, you raised two important points there. One is about an investment of different tools. Number one, what, are, what is that investment? What does it look like? What kind of tools are you talking about? And then you, 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 you mentioned a more, another interesting point around guarantees. Now, oftentimes when we put the question of guarantees on the table, there was always pushback. So what do guarantees look like today? What would convince both sides to show a commitment in the way that Ambassador Hammer was, was pointing out? And then I, I would like to ask you, We've skirted around the issue of what keeps both sides alive. We know that Hemeti thrives because he still has access to resources and is able to generate revenue. We knew that in 2019, one of the factors that didn't change was that you know, the, the, the ability or the, the, the responsibility to deliver the peace dividend was foisted on the civilians while the other side had access to money, had access to resources, were not asked to make the same kind of commitment um, that Prime Minister Hamdok was forced to make. So in a sense, that hasn't changed also. So how do you get that political investment? What do the guarantees look like? And how do you turn off the tap as well? Let me start with the last question first. It is not the, only the generals are invested in this war. As we can see very clearly with the events of the past few days following the EGAD announcement, the Islamists within Sudan are very much back and they are very much able to play not just the Sudanese armed forces but also the rapid support forces in, in encouraging them to keep this war going. It is in their interest more than SAF's right now because it is not able to make any kind of political and sorry, military gains on the ground it is in the Islamist interest to keep this going because, frankly, they have a horse in, in both races. But I think what we need to understand is that in order for them to be remotely incentivized to enter genuinely into any kind of peace mediations or any kind of ceasefire mediations, you have to target their finances. If you do not target their finances, they will only buy more bullets and they will only buy more guns. And that is actually the biggest leverage that they have. Their ability to inflict a large amount of violence and frankly trigger instability in other countries. We're seeing this in real time happening next door in Chad as well as in other countries. And that is the biggest leverage that they have and they know that they can keep this war going to exact whatever it is at any given moment they think they can. So tackling their finances is first and foremost. How do you do that? What are, what are the specifics? What would sure. you we sanction, recommend we sanction, we sanction and the United States is doing that. So sanctions are great, but sanctions have to be part of a strategy. You can't ad hoc sanction people whenever they don't do what you want. We already know what the, the, who the chief protagonists are within the SAF, within the RSF, within the Islamist movement. There has to be a political strategy, a unified political strategy, particularly with support from the United States, that within which sanctions fall. Sanctions by themselves will only be symbolic 
and will not be able to actually attack the financial flows and the weapons flows unless they are part of a think thought through strategy. And the hope, my hope is that now that we see that Jeddah has somewhat stepped to the side and allowed the region to take the reins, we will be able to see much more of a consolidated approach because one of Jeddah's many issues was that it did not properly engage countries that frankly are pretty much party to the conflict. And here I mean the United Arab Emirates, which it has been very publicly and very clearly laid out, is very much fueling one side of this conflict. Can I ask you both, Ambassador Hammer and Halud, do you, did you come out of Djibouti with a sense of a clear political horizon defined by the regional heads of states? And, and Halud, after Ambassador Hammer answers, can you begin to give us the, the broad contours of what a sort of political strategy looks like? Ambassador yeah, no, first. No, thank you. And well, yes, I mean, again, it, it needs to be understood how Jeddah came about. It was the only place that the parties were prepared to enter these discussions about a ceasefire with the United States and Saudi Arabia. If that hadn't happened, nothing would have happened. So we should remember that that's the context. But it is very important, and we, the United States, are supporting EGAD, the African Union's efforts to bring together collectively what needs to be done in terms of pressurizing the parties. And let, let me assure you, as we go forward with sanctions and applying other pressure, there is a strategy. There is a strategy. Now, executing it is a challenge because it requires all these different actors to work cooperatively. Lude, Ambassador says of the strategy. What does that look like from where you're sitting? What is the political context? And then one of the weak links, Halud, and I say to you because I know that that's been the center of your own focus. It's been around the very fragmented political landscape with the various different, competing different political actors, but also among civil society. Because half of the job is around ending um, the fight and getting the belligerents to the table, but they continue to survive if the other side is in, or because they see the other side is in disarray. So how do you begin to weave together the strategy and horizon among the civilians and among the political class as well? I mean, look, it's definitely a difficult task because the civilians, are, you know, it's a multiplicity of different political beliefs, ideologies, etc., that comprise the, the Sudanese um, civilian landscape. And I, I would always push back against this idea that somehow all of these people have to come together and sing from the same hymn sheet. I don't think we would ever dream of saying this in, about any other country. You know, the Republicans and Democrats have to get together on the table and agree on everything. That's never going to happen. Similarly, in the UK or in any other political context, that's just simply not going to work. So we also have to adjust our ideas and our assumptions about what it is what kind of consensus we'd like these people to get a sense of. Now, in terms of the civilians, it's very imperative that they themselves understand that the stakes now are extremely high. As we sit on this very nice stage in this very nice room, people in Sudan all over the country are dying. The stakes could not be higher. The country is on the verge of disintegrating, not just into two pieces. This is not a Libya scenario that we're looking at anymore. It is much more about a, a very sort of acute level of disintegration that we can see. And so some of the personal politics that we see within the civilian class need to now be moved to the side, and we need to get some level of agreement about core principles. Now, what we have at the moment, unfortunately, is that there are still civilian discussions around who will represent whom. And as long, in this, until we are 
until we move away from this idea of representation through figureheads, we will never be able to agree on an, a political agenda. We need to figure out on what it is that will unite us as a country, what kind of country we need to rebuild. Now, in terms of the investments that you made earlier, I would like to go to, back to that question. You said, what kind of investments need to be made now? If we are looking at the long-term conflict, as you know, the Sudan's history shows us, then we need to make sure we invest in protection of civilians. Now, last week, the United Nations unanimously and quite surprisingly agreed to do away entirely with the Unitam's transitional mission. Now, Sudan is no longer in transition, so there is room to say perhaps this is not the right vehicle for UN assistance. But even if we make that argument and the mission is terminated, what takes its place? Unitam's had a protection of civilians mandate that was a key pillar of its mandate. What replaces that? Unless there is a very well-structured protection of civilians mandate which can bring in lots of different things, including, if needed, boots on the ground, and we have seen the necessity for this, particularly in Darfur, then that needs to be front and center of the investments we make now. We also need to make sure that the humanitarian envelope, which is less than 40% funded, is funded. And right now, we're, we're staring effectively at a very, very difficult year, even if this lasts for another 20 years. We're looking at famine on the very recent horizon because of all the crop failures. We're looking at disintegration of the country. As I said earlier, we're looking at increased numbers of atrocities and genocide-like events. So we have to act now. We have to make these investments now. Before I turn to Maruthi, Ambassador Tete, I want to ask you a little bit more about the, the unit terms as well because we are, as you rightly pointed out, facing... It's a sense of deja vu. It's 20 years ago that we were talking about Darfur. How are we going to address the plight of civilians? This morning, I happened to catch the end of Martin Griffith's own present presentation where he said that we're going to have less money in 2024 to deal with the humanitarian catastrophe and Sudan is high up on, on the priority list. So the end of UNITAMS does not mean the end of UN engagement. Mm -hmm. We still have a UN country team in Sudan, and that country team will remain in Sudan. And part of the discussion, the internal discussion now, is what next? But in the meantime, we have not also created a situation where there's a vacuum in terms of political engagement, because as we mentioned at the beginning, former Minister Lamambra has been appointed as the special envoy, and my office, the office of the UN to the Horn of Africa, will also be in support of the work of personal envoy Lamamra. I think that what we all need collectively is a greater sense of urgency. And I was listening to Kolu talking about the civilian initiatives and about the who. And I would say that at the moment it's not about who gets to lead, it's what is your political project. And some of, of, of for me, the frustration in, in engaging with uh, Sudanese actors is that it tends to be very personalized in terms of the way in which there's engagement on what is a serious political issue that requires much more thought and much more seriousness about what actually are we going to do in terms of strategy to be able to overcome this current impasse. Now, the point that was also made earlier about none of these generals, none of the combatants, let me refer to them that way instead of personalizing it myself, none of the combating parties at the moment have an incentive to stop fighting. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the more reason why we need to have unified engagement mm -hmm. on the part of institutions and partners mm -hmm. of these belligerents to make sure that there is the incentive provided mm -hmm. to do that. And the mm -hmm. last point that I would like to make, 
with regard to the issue of sanctions and the implementation of sanctions. Mm -hmm. We've seen perhaps too many times the, the loopholes in sanctions regime that allow parties to avoid the implications of those sanctions. And I think that we also have to pay more attention to how we address those so that we all collectively put pressure on these actors to make sure that we get to the cessation of hostilities we want to see. Maruthia, you know, I, I, both Ambassador Hammer and Kaluda sort of in their different ways talked about the varying competing regional interests. And, and you said that you, you felt that Sudan had even gone way beyond Libya type scenario, that the country is on the verge of collapsing into different strongholds. Maruthi, what scenarios are you now looking at in terms of the regionalization of Sudan's conflict? There are competing interests, but Sudan is also in a very troubling and precarious region. You have talked about the seven coups that we've seen in the continent in the last three years. We have the Horn, we have Chad, we have the Sahel, we have a very precarious Egypt, and to the south we've got, or we don't know if we've got, elections in South Sudan, and we've got Somalia also limping forward. So how do we deal with Sudan in that context as well? If Sudan fails, it'll be the largest state failure in history. We are talking about a country of 40 million. It's at the crossroads of so many regions, as we heard from Hannah. But Comfort, you know, you talked about the numbers, and maybe if I can add some texture to that. We have a lot of Sudanese that have moved to Nairobi, where I'm based, and a lot of them tell me that one of the worst things about the conflict is that they had no lead time to prepare for it. They were having coffee in the streets of Khartoum, and other places, they saw the generals building up their forces. But then, as the Norwegian ambassador to Sudan said, nobody really thought that they would drive at full speed over the cliff. What did that mean? It meant people left their homes with the clothes on, the back, on their backs. It meant that people, for example, that don't trust the Sudanese banking system, had their money in hard cash, in dollars, in the bank. They left all their life savings. So, you know, you, you really can't understate what an enormous tragedy it is. But for the region, it's also a big problem. A country that neighbors seven countries, a country that's sandwiched by two of the three most populous countries uh, on the continent. But also, the reason there are so many mediation initiatives is partly because of the stakes. If you look at Sudan, Port Sudan is about 300 kilometers from Jeddah. It's part of this region. It's a country that is the third largest country on the continent. What will it mean in terms of the possible spread? I think one of the tragedies of the Horn is that almost every country has a proxy in the other country. We already see that Chad, for example, is already tottering. You know, you've just spoken about the coups. One of the favorite parlor games these days on the continent is who's going to be next. I don't want to predict, but Chad and South Sudan are already very weak countries. They are under stress with the number of refugees they've taken in. Libya is in the neighborhood, Central African Republic, very weak countries. But what we worry about is that if the fighting, as some fear now, spreads to Eastern Sudan, 
if it edges towards Port Sudan. And given the number of countries that want a foothold in the Red Sea, you'll see a dramatic expansion of the proxy dynamic. What needs to be done? I think speed is essential. I'm glad to hear what Ambassador Hama and Ambassador Tete outlined, but I'll just conclude with one statement I heard from a former Sudanese ambassador. He said, if this war continues another three months, I will never be able to return to Sudan. My children will never be able to return to Sudan. Maybe my grandchildren will be able to return. Those are the stakes. So I think speed is really essential to try and arrest this slide into further disaster. Maruthi, how do you how do you build that you know a more coherent sort of mediation effort to deal with the urgency that you spoke about? What does it look like based on what you heard Ambassador Hammer and his readout from from IGAD? Do you, did you hear anything that suggested that we can see a more coherent mediation to address the urgency of the situation? It's very hard to have hope at a stage like this comfort, but I would say that we still can retain hope because of who the Sudanese people are. Many Sudanese are in the hall, I know, and they have this culture of talking to each other. They have this culture, as one Sudanese told me, of fighting and attending each other's weddings. I would say that we really need a unified effort at this stage. I'm glad that something seems to be cohering. Mm -hmm. I think that what we heard about Jeddah was important. It was an important forum because the parties were comfortable in it. I think what we need now is the mediators to really rally around one shared initiative, take advantage of the fact that maybe the belligerents, as we heard from Ambassador Tete, have not really been able to achieve what they were aiming for. There is a possible path forward, but we really need at least one initiative and everybody to rally behind that and maybe personal envoy Lamamra can help to marshal, essentially had the cuts into one room. Thank you very much, Maruthi. Kulud, I will give you the last word. I just wanted to um, respond to a question you asked earlier about the, about the investments that need to be made. And in terms of humanitarian spending, because we know there's going to be less money, not more money in the next uh, period, we have to make sure that we use that money properly. And that means looking at who's actually being able to deliver on the ground. And what we see quite clearly is, it is, is that it is local responders who are much more better placed and much more able to support their communities. And so what I would stress um, to, to any donors in the room, any um, one from international organizations, etc., is that you have to look at localization, 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 localization. That is the way you're going to help a, a, a country where no one can get visas from the international community, where aid does not come within 100 meters of the port and where it doesn't go where it needs to go. Thank you very much, Ambassadors Tete, um, Hammer, um, Khulud, Amruthi. Thank you all very much for, for, the, for a wonderful panel. Thank you. Thank you.